Welcome to the Acton Light Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. Today we are bringing you a conversation with Stephanie Slade, the managing editor of Reason, and Eric Cohn, the director of communication here at Acton. In this episode, they discuss the philosophy of fusionism. Slade writes that fusionism is the marriage of two value sets, liberty and virtue. Liberty, in the classical sense of freedom from aggression, coercion, and fraud, and virtue, in the Judeo-Christian sense of submission to God's commands. In this unifying value set, we can see fusionism as a distinct philosophical orientation unto itself. Rather than a tug of war between two philosophies, which we see played out today, fusionism introduces the idea that liberty and virtue should have never been separated. With fusionism, we see this unbreakable bond between the two, where people can freely choose to live out their individual rights and freely live out the teachings of Christianity. The founding fathers believed that virtue and liberty were, according to Slade, mutually reinforcing, and that neither could survive long without the other. A free society depends on a virtuous populace. The question we explore in this episode is this. If a free society requires morality, how do we live virtuously in an age that rejects it? You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. I'm joined today by Stephanie Slade, who is the managing editor of Reason and author of the new piece in the most recent edition of the magazine, Is There a Future for Fusionism? Stephanie, thanks so much for joining us on Acton Line. Thanks for having me back. So let's start definitionally. Um, what is, in by your lights, fusionism? How do you define it? And what is, I guess, the short history of it? I think it actually helps to begin by saying what it is not and what the conventional wisdom is about fusionism that I kind of am trying to debunk in this article. Um, there's a story that a lot of people have heard that says that fusionism was this is a sort of name for what happened during the Cold War era um, when both religious traditionalists and libertarians came together under one tent and form, formed a coalition or an alliance because both felt that they had this common enemy in the Soviet Union that they were both against. And so, and so that having that common en- enemy brought these two camps together and held them together. And of course, the Soviet Union was both atheistic, which was a problem for the religious traditionalist camp, and it was also anti-capitalistic. And so that was a problem for the libertarian camp. So they were willing to sort of you know, cooperate with each other and even sometimes cede ground to each other in order to put up a strong front against the Soviet Union and and the sort of rampaging uh, threat of communism. Um, That's the conventional story you often hear. 
And, um, and then it ends by saying something like, well, with the fall of the Soviet Union, the glue that held this coalition together went away. And so it should become as no surprise that the alliance between religious traditionalists and libertarians has been uh, sort of disintegrating in the last couple of decades and, and that that is uh, epitomized in the last few years by the rise of Trump and the rise of this sort of post-liberal um, big government conservatism that you're hearing a lot of it, you know, getting a lot of attention on the right um, because there's no reason for the relig religious traditionalists, for example, to um, to sort of have an alliance with the libertarians anymore. They don't need to, they don't need to um, you know, stand strong against the Soviet Union anymore. I think that story is wrong um, because I think that it is a mistake to describe fusionism as an alliance of two separate groups. And it is, it is much more helpful to think of fusionism as an, uh, a separate uh, philosophical orientation unto itself. It's not just a pragmatic bringing together of relig religious traditionalists and libertarians, but it is rather the orientation held by people who think that both virtue and liberty are important and who want to find a way to sort of bring those two together on, in one philosophical, not just one practical or, you know, coalitional camp, but one um, coherent, independent philosophical outlook. Would you draw some kind of a distinction between what you're defining there as fusionism and what I guess could perhaps be otherwise termed the Reagan coalition. Um, so as I've typically heard fusionism defined, it's not just two camps, it's three. So you have your individualists or libertarians or the uh, economic uh, libertarians, pro-capitalist types. That's one, one camp or one leg of the stool. You have the traditionalists or social conservatives. And the third are uh, foreign policy hawks, uh, which I think draws in the part about the Soviet Union more. Um, do you think that that coalition which I think could be argued, you know, certainly predated Reagan's ascendancy to the presidency um, and would probably, in terms of the timeline, I think, track with the history of fusionism from uh, the founding of National Review, if that's gonna, kind of where we're going to peg the start of it. Um, do you separate those two things out at all, or do you not think that the foreign policy element of it was or should be as pronounced or considered within this definition of fusionism? I definitely separate them. That doesn't mean that, that the phenomenon of this sort of Reaganite three-legged stool wasn't a real thing. I mean, that, that was a real phenomenon. And, um, you know, if you, if you are a real nerd who studies the history of the founding of National Review magazine, you'll find that actually William F. Buckley went out and, and explicitly, you know, intentionally recruited uh, contributing editors from each of those three camps to represent these different views, the sort of Cold War hawk military, you know, military strength, national security view, the religious traditionalist view, and the sort of economic libertarian view. He wanted to bring those all together and under the banner of National Review and this conservative movement that he was helping to build. Um, and that that's a real phenomenon that happened. But yeah, my position is that that is not fusionism. And, that, and actually that the word fusionism refers to something different, which is a philosophy that actually has its roots much, much farther back, even than, you know, 1955 and the founding of National Review and William F. Buckley, that, you know, the American founders were in a, in a broad sense fusionists. They believed that both liberty and virtue were very important and that as they were trying to figure out how to found a new society and structure this new government, they were thinking, how do we, how do we, um, you know, promote and protect both of these incredibly important, these two pillars, these incredibly important pillars. Um, and, and so I don't think that they really thought of national security as being an important 
part of that project. I mean, it, it's sort of a, um, it's a, it's a secondary concern. You need, you, if you're going to have a, a society where people are free, you, you can't have, you can't be sort of vulnerable to external threats, of course. But these two important values were very, very important and motivating to the founders. And two conservatives in the American tradition, which I differentiate sort of from the old school European conservative tradition, um, th- these these were the this is the core of what it means to be a conservative in America for for you know centuries was we we think that both the Judeo-Christian understanding of virtue, but also the very you know preeminent importance of, of individual liberty and individual rights um, need to we need to be able to find a way to um, protect and promote both of those things. It, it was not until I think the Frank Meyer William F Buckley era in the 20th century before this uh, this idea was refined of how do you do that how do we you know these things seem to be in tension with each other how do we protect both these things how do we trade you know figure out how to balance them against each other and i think that the the modern 20th century fusionists are the ones who made some advances in in sort of giving us a framework that um i find very persuasive and compelling for how to do that in a way, you may have at least partially answered this next question already, but I know you had a conversation with Jonah Goldberg on his podcast, and I, I believe he raised this same point that uh, referencing a essay in National Affairs a few issues ago by a political scientist named Daniel Burns, where he made distinctions between um, liberalism in theory and liberalism in practice. And that if we look around, there aren't societies that we would say are purely Lockean, that, that embody that kind of liberalism in theory, in practice, but we have liberal societies in practice. Do you think that that Reaganite coalition or what you were just discussing is perhaps a, the distinction to be made there is between fusionism in theory or philosophy, which you're discussing in, in your piece, and the fusionism in practice as formed as a political coalition based around, in that particular case, a common enemy in the Soviet Union? I don't think so. I would I would not go that far. And the reason is because I again, I just think that we we are misunderstanding um and we're sort of hurting the fusionist cause if we talk in terms of coalition building and alliances because because my my um argument, my position is that a fusionist is a person who thinks that these things are both important. And that is what a fusionist is. Virtue and liberty, both important. And the way, the way, and sort of, again, in the modern era, we have um, sort of the framework we have developed or to, um, to explain how you can, how you can, you know, make, how, how you can sort of have two priorities. If there's, if you, there's the old saying, if you have two priorities and you have no priorities, because you can only have one um, first priority. Well, the, the answer they, they came up with was that the government exists to protect individual rights and liberties. Uh, and that is the sort of highest end of the government and the, and the public policy sphere. But in the vast space outside of government, in all the decisions we make in our private lives, it's individuals, it's families, it's communities, um, the highest end is virtue. We are, we are put on this earth to pursue, to pursue the higher things. And, and that means um, virtue. And it means also a sort of constellation of other values, like faith and family and community, patriotism, even um, that you kind of have to have these, these two spheres in your mind and recognize that there, there's two spheres of life and they each exist to, uh, to give us space to, per, to, to pursue one or the other of the two, the two high values, these two pillars of fusionism. Um, that's a, a person can, I mean, I am a person who, who thinks that those two values are both incredibly important and I'm not willing to, 
uh, sacrifice either one of them. But there are people out there, you know, in, in our political environment who are non-fusionist libertarians or who are non-fusionist conservatives who maybe only think that liberty or virtue is the highest value and want that value that value to be the, the end that is pursued in all the spheres of, of life. Those people are not fusionists, right? And I actually think that recognizing that distinction is important for understanding um, how to engage with them if, if for those of us who are fusionists. It would seem to me that the inclination towards fusionism in our politics and way of thinking about the, the life of the nation is declining. So let's, we'll take it out of coalitional terms and put it back into philosophical terms. Why, why do you think we have seen this decline in the inclination towards fusionism as a uh, kind of a guiding philosophy for a lot of actors on what we would, I think, largely term the, the political right? I think we're seeing a backlash right now um, against some overreach and some illiberalism on the left in the last decade or so, uh, so such that there are a lot of um, people who maybe were, eh, they were maybe not totally committed to the fusionist position, but they were sort of under the fusionist banner before, but who really identify with the religious traditionalist side of, of that um, equation, who are saying, well, if they're not playing by the rules of, um, of treating the government as existing to protect individual rights and liberties only, if they're instead trying to use the government as a weapon or as a tool, you know, to wield the government as a weapon in order to, to punish people who disagree with them and force um, society as a whole into the mold that they want to see. So, you know, the, people are, are looking out and they're seeing tr real efforts by, by folk, liberal folks on the left to pass laws that say that Catholic hospitals have to perform abortions, that, you know, Christian bakers have to participate in a gay wedding. We, there's a, there's a lot of there's a, also this sort of um, sense of runaway PC culture, you know, political correctness run amok, um, and the idea that anybody who looks, you know, who is a Christian who believes the things that Christians believe, or or, or sort of generally accepts this, the Judeo-Christian um, values, is is an enemy in the eyes of these folks, and they're willing on the left, and they're willing to use the power of the state to come after to come after us. They say, well, then why should we play by the rules if they're not playing by the rules? Um, and they're willing to uh, sacrifice the pillar that, I, you know, if I talked about the two pillars of fusionism, the pillar that says the state exists to protect individual rights and liberties only, and that's it, the, it's limited there. Anything beyond that would be um, an inappropriate use of the state. They're saying the other side isn't accepting that rule, so why should we? Um, I think that's wrong. I think that's a huge mistake. If for no other reason than from a moral perspective, if we actually believe um, that, you know, if we actually believe that the other side is doing something wrong, then we shouldn't emulate them. You know, we should we should double down on the things that we think are right. Um, but I, but I, but I can understand where the sense of being under attack and, the, you know, the left isn't playing by the rules. So why should we play by the rules or they're, you know, they're fighting with fire. So we have to fight them with fire. I understand where that impulse comes from. I think it is a mistake, though. I, I suppose the argument against that would be seeding everything that you said about the PC culture, about the uh, actions of the left and all of that, that uh, this is, I suppose, the uh, conservatism hasn't conserved anything argument, that we're watching um, these institutions continually move to the left, that we're watching them become more radical in that sense. And if we're not going to use the mechanisms that they are willing to use against us, well, then what do those mechanisms even exist for? Um, did, that hectoring them about a limited role for the state, well, the state has grown incredibly powerful. 
And if we're not going to use it ourselves, then it's just going to be used against us. How, how do you answer that critique? Well, I think that actually the liberal institutions of, of, of society and of government have been a pretty strong bulwark against many of these attempts at overreach by the left. So I'm not saying that the threats aren't real. I, I obviously write about them you know, for a living. But the Supreme Court has fairly consistently um, come down on the side of religious liberty, free speech, you know, the protection of these values against assaults from the left. Uh, think of the, the, the Hobby Lobby court case where um, the Obama administration wanted to require employers to pay for birth control and abortifacient products for all their employers free of charge. Um, this is a private company. The Hobby Lobby is a chain of craft stores. The, it is owned by a family, um, a Christian family, the Green family, and they said we object on religious grounds and you know on conscience-based grounds to this requirement. Um, they took it all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court sided with the family against the Obama administration and said this is a this is a family-owned business. They have they cannot be required to do something that that violates their religious liberty rights, their First Amendment rights. Um, there are many examples of, of the courts and of our sort of liberal institutions getting it right when we let them. But as soon as, as soon as both, you know, as soon as you say, well, actually, um, actually it's all just about who has power and anything goes if you're the, if you're the ones in power, then there's no credibility for those institutions to take the sort of principled stand, even when it runs against, the people with power. In that, in that case, it was the court going standing up against the Obama administration, the people with power, um, on the on the basis of principle. The First Amendment holds whether you know you know even if you think it's inconvenient or unfair that women have to pay for their own birth control. Um, the institutions can go a long way, but we undermine their credibility if we treat them just again as weapons that can be wielded and put down, and you know at, at, as it's convenient for our political ends as opposed to enduring institutions that represent principles that that matter and that are higher of higher importance than any given political end. I think the record is pretty clear that you're right, especially when it comes to legal protections. The, the Hobby Lobby case is, uh, was a victory from a religious liberty standpoint that Every time the Little Sisters of the Poor have come up before the Supreme Court, they've been victorious three times so far and probably likely a fourth in the coming years. But I think the critics would point to that and say, therein lies the problem. Four times now, this order of nuns has been dragged before the United States Supreme Court to defend something that, you know, go back maybe even just 20 years, certainly 30, 40 years, wouldn't even really have been a question. Um, I think this points to the difference between uh, the the state side of things, where I, I think it's very clear those protections against um, the, the state and against other actors for religious liberty are there and they're working, but that there's a cultural battle that these people feel has largely been lost, um, or if not completely lost, then they are certainly losing it. I think they feel... I'm assuming a lot here, so I will admit that about what their motivations are, people who would argue against uh, the position you're taking, um, that they they feel without any weapon to fight the culture war that they've lost, and they don't know what tools to pick up in order to fight that battle in lieu of picking up the heavy hand of the state in order to try to reclaim what they think they've lost in, a, in the cultural sphere. No, you're right about that. And there's no question that, you know, 
conservatives, religious traditionalists who feel that the elite culture-making institutions of our country, Hollywood, Silicon Valley, academia, um, the mainstream media, are against them. Um, they're not, that's not, that's not false. They're not wrong about that. Um, but this is why it's really, I think, helpful to begin by having in your mind the idea of these two spheres, the government sphere and the, and the non-governmental sphere, um, the public policy sphere and everything else. Um, none of those battles that conservatives feel like they've lost are taking place in the governmental sphere. This is, this is civil society. And if conservatives and religious traditionalists are, are losing there, to me, that's a sign that they need to do better and maybe they need to re-engage in those areas and they need to uh, pull some of their focus away from winning elections and move it into, uh, move their focus into institution building, uh, civil society institution building. So if, if as a society, we are, um, we have sort of, you know, religiosity is declining, um, you have uh, divorce, di marriage rates are down, divorce rates are up. Like there are all these things that, that traditional conservatives would, would say are, are troubling. You have the opioid crisis, of course. Um, what are you doing about it? You know, we, we all have an obligation to, to try to solve these problems um, individually and, and, and as community members. And the left is is sort of um, winning those battles in a way because they have done a really good job of institution building. And I think the right has, has not, they right has been more focused on, and, and, you know, there've been successes, the Republican party, you know, has held state governments and has, you know, up until recently had, had a lot of success at the federal government level, this last election being a sort of outlier. Um, so, I guess the point that I want to make is that, especially as conservatives, um, we should recognize that there are more important things in life than than public power, government power. Um, there are much more important things in life. The vast, the you know, the the larger and more important aspects of our lives happen outside of public policy. And so, like, what are we doing to make sure that the thing, the values we care about, if virtue in in this traditional sense is a thing we feel like our society has lost, like, what are we doing to to address that? Let me challenge you on one thing you said there. So the idea that um, they they haven't been losing within the the public policy or governmental sphere. Am I correctly remembering what you'd said in that answer? I'm not attributing something there to you. Well, there has been a lot of success among conservatives. So again, okay, I wouldn't say that. You know, obviously Obama was president for eight years. He did a lot of things we don't like. So I'm not trying to overstate the case. Sure. So let let, let me put this to you then. Um, and I'm going to draw a little bit from my own uh, insistence, I guess, that there is a, a clear coalitional uh, aspect to fusionism, um, which we've already covered, but uh, just allow me that for the purpose of this question. Um, it, it is largely attributed, as you said, that the death knell of this kind of co at least coalitional fusionism or, or Reaganite coalition uh, was the end of the Cold War and the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, I tend to think that it was something different uh, looking back. I think that may have been the beginning of it, but the thing that expedited the uh, kind of political coalition cleaving that we're seeing and that we have seen uh, was the fight over gay marriage. That we had in 2004, we have uh, constitutional state constitutional amendments against gay marriage being a primary part of George W. Bush's reelection strategy, and 11 years later, you have the Obergefell decision, which you know set aside the public policy question in, in and of itself, was a very 
unconservative in the rapid pace at which we moved from one way things were to the things being completely different. And as a result, I think you're you're looking at people, certainly in the traditionalist camp of the fusionist coalition, um, or the the um, virtue pillar, I think, would probably be the part of it from a philosophical standpoint, and seeing that they lost a public policy battle there, and then watched, uh, I think they would describe, I can't remember who it was who said this, the people who won that battle, uh, then scour the battlefield and shooting the wounded, um, the manifestation of that being the cake baker in Colorado and, and issues like that. Um, do you think there's anything to that? Um, do you think that that loss in a public policy space and a cultural space simultaneously uh, points to why we're experiencing this coalitional or philosophical cleaving of the American right? I think you've actually got it exactly backwards. Um, the conservatives lost the cultural battle there and the public policy inevitably follows. But it wasn't just 2004. In 2008, my home state of Florida passed a gay marriage ban. Uh, in 2011, Barack Obama was still on the record opposed to gay marriage. The the thing that changed, and I, there, there's this great gra- graph that you can find of Pew Research Center or Gallup data showing support for gay marriage. And almost immediately after the support ticks above 50% nationally for gay marriage, Obama announced that he had had an evolution in his views on this question. Po- politician, politics, you know, follows culture on these things. The problem is that conservatives lost the cultural battle, that public opinion changed and it changed rapidly. Um, and that was a, that was a, I mean, that was a sort of PR success for gay marriage and, and gay rights advocates. They, they, you, we, actually at Reason, a few years ago, we published a piece by uh, Jonathan Rauch in which he talked about how the, you know, the strategy that they used to try to um, humanize what they were asking for in terms of equal rights, you know, marriage rights. Um, and I think it was successful. I think, and, and they, they used the sort of, um, pop culture, you know, you turn on TV and you find Will and Grace and, or get, you know, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy or whatever. They used all these, all these sort of pieces of civil society institutions that they, that they were, you know, were working through in order to try to change the culture and they succeeded and the law followed. Now, what happened after that, what you described about, you know, shooting survivors on the battlefield is extremely problematic. And, but, but that's, now we're, we're back in the, we're sort of back in the zone of public policy again because they're trying to use the state to go after people. And here I think we still, like we as conservatives in this moment especially need our classical liberal uh, governing institutions that will that will stay strong when it comes to defending these individual rights and liberties as opposed to um, the, I don't know, woke sort of leftist understanding of virtue um, and imposing that on people, which is how many people on the left would like would like the state to be used. You write for a, a libertarian magazine. Um, do you think that libertarians are would be correctly defined as being on the right? Well, that, this is a major debate among you know in libertarian world. Uh, libertarians love to fight with each other about things like this, and there are people who identify as left libertarians. Um, I consider myself to be on the right. Um, there are some people, I would say some of my colleagues probably would reject the idea that they're either left or right. They don't want to be, you know, it's a very libertarian thing to not want to be branded with either label. Um, I, I would say, though, that the reason I consider my, one of the reasons I consider, you know, reason, for example, to be you know, more or less um, on the right, right of center is 
because of our, our view on economic policy. And so we're, we're clearly in favor of free, free markets. Uh, free minds and free markets is the tagline of reason. Um, this, this is um, a thing that differentiates us from you know, polit the politics of the left in a way that is often appears to be kind of an unbridgeable divide. M most people on the left just do not want to work with libertarians because of our views on economic policy and our, and our desire to keep the government out of the economy. And so I think we, we've naturally found more a more comfortable home on the right. But that's, of course, right now in this moment, the moment in which post-liberal conservatism is getting a lot of traction, um, there is a question about whether that will continue. Well, I think even perhaps more so than the questions of economic policy, although it feeds into this, is is the view of this, the role of the state that you've articulated that for mo most of its history, although certainly the um, conservatives would have a more robust view of the state, although certainly throughout you know, the previous, you know, rewind at least 20 years, a less robust view of the state than many of them seem to now, that they, the role, the idea that the role of the state is as limited as humanly possible is the thing that knits it uh, together. I, I, I think that would probably largely be true in terms of the intersection between libertarians. Again, we're generalizing on both of those camps because there are a lot of, you know, it, it just like uh, when you talk about music, you have general genres of music and then so many subgenres that it's almost impossible to keep them all straight. But um, there seems to have been in recent years as well, a inclination amongst libertarians to have more of an alliance with the left, if we assume, again, the coalitional idea of fusionism being a uh, alliance with libertarians or individualists, as they would have been called then with the right, what do you think is the tenability of um, political coalition building with the political left amongst libertarians? Well, I'm all for again. Again, I don't think that this is. I think thinking of fusionism in the same uh, conflating fusionism, which I consider to be a philosophy or a philosophical orientation, with the sort of nitty gritty political coalition building is a mistake. But um, I'm all for working with people on the left when when there's an opportunity to do so. Libertarians have always, it's, it's this long running sense of frustration that we all have always had that we care very deeply about things like ending the drug war and promoting criminal justice reform. And it really seems to us that there should be natural allies on these issues on the left um, more than sort of the um, the you know, the law and order conservatives on the right who may be a little more skeptical of these positions. Um, and and some, to some extent, we have done some of that, of that bridge building to the left on these issues in recent years. Um, but, but it's been harder than we might, we maybe would have thought it should be. Um, and again, I think that that's because of the distrust they feel towards us because of our, our views on economics. So, but one of the things I've said a couple of times is that as we're thinking in terms of um, the schism that has opened up along the fault line of liberalism, that it is a schism that runs across both left and right. So there are people who are on the left of center who are on what I would consider to be the liberal, the correct, the liberal side of the schism. And there are people who are left of center who are on the illiberal side. And the same is true on the right. There are people who are on the right who are nonetheless liberal, classical liberal conservatives. And there are these illiberal or post-liberal conservatives. And when you, when you start thinking in those terms, you can at least conceptualize why it might make sense for people who are on the, the correct, what I would consider to be the correct side of the liberalism schism, whether left or right, um, to be looking to each other as potential allies. Because the, because at some point, I mean, I think, I think for me, I would, I really struggle to imagine a world in which I have the ability to work closely with um, 
the sort of post-liberal or illiberal conservatives, people who are on the wrong side of the liberalism divide, that's much harder for me to build, imagine building bridges with, um, at least when it comes to public policy, as opposed to somebody who's maybe what I think of as the, the old school uh, ACLU liberal, the kind, of, the kind of person who's left of center, but believes very deeply in, in, in uh, you know, civil rights and individual rights and liberty as the First Amendment. Now, this, of course, is complicated by the fact that the ACLU today has decided that, you know, if you if you want to exercise your Second Amendment rights, you have to forfeit your First Amendment rights or something. But um, but, you know, that's why the old school left, you know, liberal, the old school left liberals and and the sort of fusionist conservatives. I think there, there is opportunity to potentially for us to work together on things. I think that's one of the reasons you're seeing so many people. I think I, I mentioned this before, but you know, the, in the last year, we've seen all these people who were left of center journalists, writers, thinkers, leave mainstream media publications, ma- mainstream media outlets, and go independent. They, they start their own Substack um, newsletters or, or podcasts and things like that. And the reason is because they're, although they're left of center, they feel like these institutions that they were associated with are increasingly on the wrong side of the liberalism divide. And so they're looking for a new home. Um, and so th- there, there are just opportunities here, I, I think, whether, whether they'll actually turn into anything, I don't know, but the opportunities are there. Stephanie Slade is managing editor of Reason, and her piece, Is There a Future for Fusionism, appears in the most recent edition of Reason magazine. We'll also put a link to it in the show notes for this episode. Stephanie, thanks so much for joining us today on Act in Line. Thank you for having me. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at actinline at actin.org. Until next week, for Actin Line, I'm Gabriel Jaja.